Today on the Innovation Show, we welcome John Murphy, CEO and co-founder of 8West Consulting. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks very much, Aidan. Great to have you on the show. And I saw you speaking recently at uh, the IT at Cork event, and you had a lot of interesting things to say, so I thought we'd follow up and have a chat. So uh, without further ado, tell us about yourself and the business. I, I suppose I've been in the software business in Ireland for maybe 30 years now. If we just say that rather quickly, it'll pass quickly. <laughs> uh, I would have started off uh, my time working in core computers, which is actually still around in Cork, a large software company. And then I moved into uh, digital in Galway and Digital Equipment Corporation in Galway. I was there for nine years. I was on the software side of it. I saw a very interesting, I, I suppose, uh, company. It was a very interesting and very challenging place to work at the time as well, a very dynamic uh, organization. And um, it was part of that whole um, organization, really, that had a, both a hardware component in Galway, it had a hardware component and a uh, large component in, in Clonmel as well, as well as the software center in Galway. Uh, eventually, uh, hardware um, uh, was shut down uh, in Ireland, uh, Clamel first and then Galway, and then software um, is actually still there under different ownership, but uh, some people that I've worked with are actually still in that organization. Uh, so I moved then from, from digital to Seagate, which was a, kind of a rapid startup in Clonmel. I was one of the first in that organization and one of the last out of it. It, it uh, lasted two and a half years in that sort of experiment. And then uh, moved to Cork. There was an opportunity to um, head up a small software development shop for a U.S. insurance company that was looking around for a place to set up uh, um, a kind of offshore development shop. It was 1998, uh, prior to Y2K. Uh, things were hotting up for resources in the States. I think the unemployment rate in the, the States back then was about 4 or 5%, similar to where it's uh, lying right now. And the guys needed to get uh, resources. And the uh, CEO of that U.S. Uh, insurance company, it was a D-Care Dental Insurance Company, was a, a Mayo man and was looking to set up somewhere in Ireland. So uh, set up in Cork with seven people and um, kind of grew the organization um, uh, very quickly. Uh, my, uh, kind of my, my business partner now, Eamon Franklin, who's the co-CEO of 8West, uh, he and I, uh, worked to kind of a, a very interesting kind of a business model within the company. Yes, we wanted to be a fantastic uh, multinational subsidiary for a parent company, but we also wanted to grow the business to go beyond just being a multinational subsidiary and move it into being a competitive software company that would go out and compete for uh, other software development contracts, um, both in the US and in Europe. Um, and our, our parent company gave us that uh, support and that charter to go away and do that. And we kind of grew the company substantially uh, to the extent over a number of years. The, the D-Care company was purchased by Anthem. Um, Anthem would be about Fortune 33, uh, does, has a revenue in the region of about, about 80 billion a year. Huge insurance company in the United States. And it purchased um, D-Care plus, you know, at the time it was DSI in Cork in, um, uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, so, um, again, the organization continued to grow. We got over 100 people, 120, 130, and just a lot of core software development. And Eamon and I really looked to kind of grow the company to be a very strong software engineering shop going after large scale uh, software development projects and insurance or in, you know, in critical infrastructure systems, uh, such as large e-commerce uh, applications as well. So um, we, we then got to the stage where um, 
we had discussions with Anthem on um, acquiring the company and we spent uh, two years going through an MBO process that we thought would only take about six months. And uh, it always takes longer and it always costs a little bit more. And uh, as of January the 1st this year, then um, Eamon and I took uh, uh, ownership of this company and we rebranded it 8 West Consulting. We're currently at about uh, 194 people, um, pretty much everybody based in Cork, still focused on strong object-orientated uh, development or development in C-sharp and in Java. And uh, in more recent years, we moved from being just a full kind of services company doing critical infrastructure and critical system development um, into product development as well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you see yourselves now five, six months into the, uh, the new venture and it really feels a uh, very fresh, uh, very fresh company and everybody's invigorated that we've got a kind of a new goal and new charter kind of moving forward. Yeah, it really does. When you have that kind of refresh, every company needs it. But John, I thought it was interesting. We're talking about the platforms, the type of platforms you, you build. Could you tell us a bit about that? It's very hard to say, like, is there a vertical that you guys in 8 West go after? So, well, there are things that we're really very, very good at, but we don't really limit ourselves to any particular vertical. We're, we're software engineer. I'm a software engineer by trade. Eamon's a software engineer by trade. So we, our oxygen really are, would be, you know, very complex systems or mission-critical systems, and we've got some fantastic architects and, and lead developers here that we can assemble around solving uh, technical uh, problems, but some of the very large systems that we have built would be um, the, some of the largest uh, e-commerce platforms for for clients in the states and and in the EMEA. We do very little work in in Ireland. Most of our, our business is in the United States. Um, so uh, as as well as the those very online systems, mission critical systems, and we've built uh, very large scale claims adjudication, benefit management systems that deal with the complexities of the U.S. Uh, healthcare um, legislation. And uh, you're dealing with, with millions of transactions, millions of transactions a day, and uh, certainly our e-commerce platforms, um, which we built pretty much from the, the ground up in many cases, are you know pretty mission critical to the organizations that we've assembled them for. And they were built in, again, as I mentioned earlier on, they were built in the Java development platform or as they're built in um, and C Sharp. But they would be very, very large scale systems. And like very, the, the, the largest clients that we would work for um, uh, in the United States and in DMEA um, are at the forefront of the internet technology and the forefront of the, the threats that exist in many, organ through many organizations in the States. So, um, and one of the, the topics I think we discussed uh, last week in, in talking about the retention and storage of personal healthcare information and personally identifiable information are a set of kind of um, development practices and uh, techniques and really coding regimes that need to go with all that. It, gone are the days where we are just kind of spinning up a website and kind of putting it out on the internet and uh, hoping that it doesn't crash. You're now building you know, digital storefronts for very large-scale organizations, which is really, is there a window? And is there a door to the internet? Is there a door to to potential threat vectors as well from, um, uh, you know, individuals who are motivated to cause damage, either reputational damage or state actors or even competitors? So there's a very, very strong focus now um, in the types of applications that we're building on making sure that the correct security practices are in place in a development organization. So, so for us as well as, you know, we would have, as I mentioned, close to 200 people here and pretty much everybody working on development projects. 
We would have um, continuous integration environments, which are very standard in, in most um, agile software development companies. But as part of all that, of course, we have continuous code coverage and continuous code quality projects, our processes being applied to all our code before it's being checked in. And then, of course, we've got um, passive scanning of code, dynamic scanning of code, penetration testing of code. So you, you have a, a huge umbrella of security um, practices that are being applied to the code that we are developing. As most organizations, large-scale organizations now view themselves already as being penetrated potentially by, um, by hackers, uh, a lot of the systems, even internal systems now, are being built to the same ex security standards as external systems. So this, this puts, um, uh, this puts uh, a slightly different uh, perspective, really, I suppose, on how you're actually building your applications. Because traditionally in the past, if you're building an internal system for accounts, you, you were always assured that, you know, was, that security was 100% watertight within the IT department or within that cabinet or within that computer room. You know, common, common security uh, posture now would be that you view the, the uh, system has already been breached in some way and you try to secure all your internal systems as well. So you bring all that, that security uh, development experience that we have from building our large online systems and we apply that now onto internal systems as well. So uh, when we find ourselves uh, working in these, these large scale uh, development projects, it brings a couple of of well just uh, acceptable characteristics of those projects as well one being that uh, our software company is audited very regularly you know by our clients because our clients themselves are are in um, the insurance world and they themselves are being audited and held to account by various states and, um, and federal authorities in the united states so so we would have to undergo audits from um, either in our customers independent auditors and you're probably looking I would host, uh, host, I suppose, yes, I'd host a, an auditing team at least once a quarter coming on site here from a customer that goes through every single policy and procedure that we have within our organization. In some cases, we'll install some software and hardware to check that, that our security, that our network is, uh, is secure. They may even take a developer's PC and break it down to make sure that it has everything that we say it has. And then we'll look at uh, logs to ensure that we are doing what we are say that we are doing. So you, you have all that that kind of uh, external um, exposure, uh, you know, that when you're in that business, you do expect to be uh, audited and you do need to be able to kind of come out of those audits um, in, a, in a pretty tight manner. Uh, so the, the, it, it's, it's part and parcel really of the type of uh, business environment that we find ourselves in. Like, you know, if you grow up and if you grow up as a software company and you start winning those critical projects, um, your customers would expect you to have would expect you to have uh, software development and security practices that are absolutely tier one and standard and as good as anything else out in the industry. So you really need to, you, you, you know, one stage you, you try to get everybody as innovative as possible. and You got to support all that, but then you got to secure the environment as much as possible as well. So it's uh, not quite security isn't a, a, a counterculture really for the uh, for innovative, you know, startup mentalities, but it's something that needs to be kind of embedded for the very start, understanding that you are responsible for systems that process, you know, uh, personally identifiable information or private healthcare information or PCI and DSS information. So with that comes um, some pretty st strange, and you're moving beyond just even data protection, what data protection means, because the, in, in certainly in the case of the US, the uh, 
the legislation is probably even tighter than it is in Europe. Um, so it's just an interesting aspect of the type of things that we do. When you have this kind of external auditor or the teams, as you say, coming in every so often, it makes you have to be at the top of your game. Because I, I heard that about 8West, that you know, security is a huge part of, of your offering as well as the expert code that you, you, you work on. But um, it, it raised a really interesting one, John, because we talked about this before was data regards health tech, for example. People would struggle to see why somebody would want to know Aidan McCullen's health data versus my credit card data. And you expanded on this, and I think it'd be really interesting to tell our audience about that. Yeah, there's a couple of, of different aspects as to why this information would be useful to external actors. So if you're looking at the... the uh, probably the most tame would be that people have just got criminal intent to do damage, um, which would be one. They're just coming in to do damage to install some ransomware um, on your server and then, you know, uh, try to exhort, uh, exert as much money as possible out of you. Uh, then it could be an impersonation. Um, then it could be that they're seeking to inject some other data some false data into the data set that you'd have stored in your data warehouse and and another aspect then depending on the type of company that um you are and the type of clients that you are so if you're an insurance company and you're you've got a you're covering a lot of um, maybe employees or groups that are in the defense sector or maybe in the State Department or maybe in some critical industry uh, sector, then you're, you're seeking uh, potentially, as a, potentially as a state actor, you're looking to kind of build up your profile of the individuals that work in those areas. Um, so it's part of a kind of a longer game as you're looking to build up a profile and picture of the, the person, their claims, their family, trying to seek if there's some sort of um, potentially damaging or, or um, deeply private um, healthcare information that they may be able to use and exploit. So uh, it, it's around the utility of the information and turning the information that they would retrieve upon you or upon me and making it into something that would somebody may be able to have some leverage over. Um, and that's certainly at one particular aspect of, of the hacking at the state level and the very, very large organizations uh, that are involved in the state sector would have a, a lot of that data. Yeah, and a, a lot of this data would be gathered and sold on the, on the dark web. But I was thinking about this, like, and I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat here for a second. Fast forward 20 years from now, and you think about nanorobotics and, you know, targeted medication, for example. So, you know, if I have a, a certain disease that it can target a certain area that that disease is attacking, say it's cancer and it's in, in my shoulder, that the medication can actually target the shoulder with nanorobotics that also means that weaknesses can be attacked and that if people know my weaknesses or know i have a certain allergy or whatever it may be that they can come under attack that information has a utility to somebody and the utility could be that they will look to to perform some good that there's a there's an illness there and there's there's a cure for it or there's something that will in some way um, relieve some of the conditions associated with it or there could be the exact opposite to that so the, we, we normally assume on the, the bright web, if we want to call it that, or on, on the, the, uh, this side of life that you and I live in and most of, of your listeners would live in as well, that, that um, a lot of the, the research that has been done is for the, the betterment of, of the human condition and uh, humans in general and for society and, and progressing uh, progressive healthcare 
Um, but there are also others that may have a totally different view of things, which are looking for particular weaknesses that may be exploited. So it's, it's um, yeah, PHI, private healthcare information, is something which has to be really, really super closely guarded. And it's something that, that does need to be protected at, at all costs. And, and we as developers, you know, get exposed to that as well, of course. And we need to be absolutely sure that we're protecting ourselves and making sure that data is obfuscated all, at, um, at all times. And just making sure that the software that we are building is to be as secure as possible and not as, it's not open to threat vectors. Now, you could say that, that um, you can produce uh, software that can be protected against the current threat vectors that are there. And certainly you need, need to probably refactor it on a regular basis to keep it up to speed. But um, the greatest threats in most organizations come from um, internal, uh, come from the internal network, whether either individual, individuals within the organization are motivated to, to do something illegal. And uh, that can be very uh, difficult to protect against. And it's interesting you say this, John, because I was thinking about if we're moving more and more towards an API economy, so every, data being Lego bricks that are interchangeable with different platforms or software. And, and then you have PSD2 in the banking sector where data becomes open, essentially. But then you have all these fintech companies. But a lot of the fintech companies, I mean, I would wager an, an awful lot, the majority, would not have near the experience that companies like 8West have of, of, of privacy and, you know, guarding, safeguarding that data availability and that in a way while they may have a great idea for a fintech startup they don't have the expertise in minding the the unbelievably sensitive information and data that's there mm -hmm. I, I you know i've gone through a number of um uh, i've sat through them a number of data breach presentations and have gone through actual data breach meetings um with with clients in the United States, uh, in the healthcare sector, and they're incredibly serious, um, taken very, very seriously all the way up to the CEO gets involved in it because that's the way the legislation is, is directed and targeted in, in the United States. And, um, you know, I, I've seen organizations going from, from very operational focus and suddenly there's a data breach and it's, it's like, uh, things get very, very serious very quickly. There's a whole set of processes and procedures. And I've seen organizations um, take that, uh, take an approach, I suppose, really, that would surprise many people um, in Europe. And uh, I think it's something that needs to be taken incredibly seriously. And I think in the US, they do have their, their data breach policies and procedures through their HIPAA and high tech acts uh, at a pretty high operating level within the insurance companies and with all providers within the healthcare uh, sector in the United States. And uh, it's something that uh, they all take incredibly seriously. And as technology providers into that space as well, we ourselves have to take it incredibly seriously. So when somebody needs to come and do a, a tech audit for us for, you know, a, a security audit for a week, yep, absolutely open the doors to them because we, we will have connectivity, of course, through secure VPNs into their organizations. And, you know, we would potentially be a vector as well as being one of the many technology providers into large healthcare organizations. So we take our, our responsibility really, really seriously. So what does actually mean, you know, and you and I spoke about kind of developing software for customers in the United States and developing software for customers and solutions in, in Ireland. Well, in the United States for large scale customers, they'll understand that there's a cost to building super secure systems and what it means to be able to refactor your online 
borderline solution on a monthly basis or on a quarterly basis because there's a new thread vector or there's there's a library that you've used, a Hibernate library that you've used that you need to deprecate because um, it's come up on the watch list for, for some security flaw. Um, the, the, the same sensitivity, the same um, uh, maturity, technological maturity, understanding technology doesn't exactly exist in, in many European countries as it exists in, in the United States. And that, that's, the, I suppose, some of that is a cultural thing and some of that is just the, the level of, of perhaps breaches that they've had in the United States and the sensitivity that they have to it in general. Yeah. You know, you know I'd, I'd certainly make a point that uh, if you're using a lot of open source software in your solutions, and open source is absolutely great. It's really uh, democratized uh, the software development business and taken some control away from the very large um, software product companies. But you also need to take responsibility when you're employing OSS software in your solution that you are responsible for making sure that that, you know, that that struts library, that um, Hibernate library, that Sprint, Spring library is kept up to date, you know, with the latest trust, the latest uh, security uh, upgrades and updates. And in the OSS world, that's a little bit difficult. If it's within you're buying an IBM solution, then it's up to them to be able to kind of upgrade it. But in OSS, it's up to the developer to be able to do it. So uh, you don't just going to build it and put it out there and leave it there. Yeah, it's a it's a really valid point, John. About you know, if you look at the markets in in Europe and in Ireland, you know, there's there's a a desire to go for the the quick and cheap solution. And I, I've worked in in development and sales and development myself, and you almost have to justify the the price when. You're going to go. No, this is not just a website. You, what you see at the front is the front, but there's a whole system behind it. It's like at the iceberg. You know, you see most of the iceberg exists under the water, and a lot of clients don't see that, and um, it can be very frustrating because, as you said, the the market is way more more mature in the states, and the understanding is there. Maybe it's an education thing, but it can it can be a frustrating pl- place to be. I'm not gonna. You don't have to comment on that. It's just a, a comment. I, I, I agree, hundred <laughs> percent. Okay, that's good. That's good. Okay. Um, but you talked about the dark side and the bright side of the force with regards um, uh, uh, development and data. Uh, one one of the lovely stories I saw was when you were involved, and I and you, you used drones and you used IoT in the health sector. Can we tell our audience about those, John? Sure. Um, uh, we, we started, uh, we're a services company uh, with some great software development practices uh, in play here. And one of the things that we always wanted to do is that we always wanted to give, you know, never, never close off the possibility to moving into product development or moving into ventures that are in a slightly different field from what we do. And again, it goes back to keeping the company kind of fresh, keeping the, keeping its options open as to what avenues it'll explore in the future. So um, we started getting into kind of mobile development when everybody else started getting into mobile development and we kind of stuck with it and uh, it went from everybody was going to do mobile into now really got into kind of responsive design more than mobile development. But we had um, we, we have a product uh, out in the marketplace, the SafeTracks product, which is a search and rescue product. I think it's about 10 or 12 countries that have it now across the world and uh, it's been very successful for us. And it's also been very successful from a, um, a software product development uh, perspective and really taking the, the skills that we have as a dev shop and really looking at, at building product level, um, building software to product level. It's actually interesting. One of our clients is now um, talking about the, qu- the quality that they need within their software development 
systems it needs to be at the product level rather than just being at the IT level so you're talking about kind of engineer we talk about getting getting IT solutions up to the kind of engineering quality that you actually have in products something that needs to work in the mass market so we, we built this multilingual product it's got to be very robust it's got to work kind of offshore and very frugal network situations uh, people trust in it. There's a distress button on it, and uh, it's it's been used in rescues in uh, South Africa and Norway and Ireland. So we're really really happy with it. So we we knew we could build. Um, we knew we understood the mobile platform, the mobile architecture, the Android and iOS architectures really really well because we had to work at a very detailed level with them. Um, and, and and again, I think I mentioned this uh, last week is that. Um, uh, organizations such as ourselves grow by by you know developing new social networks and uh, if we if we keep working with the same clients in the same verticals then we kind of lose that opportunity to explore other ideas and look at other avenues and so uh, through a good friend of mine who is involved in Irish community rapid response he came to me and said uh, look uh, you guys really know an awful lot about kind of mobile development is there anything we can do about uh, CPR applications um, I said, yeah, there's about 60 CPR applications out of there, uh, out in the marketplace. Uh, what, what were you thinking? I said, well, something that could really, you know, guide people into, um, uh, into carrying out CPR. And then, you know, John started talking to me, John Kearney was the guy's name. He started talking to me then about the, the survivability stats of people carrying out CPR and your chances of survival if you had a cardiac infraction outside of a, of a hospital environment or something like 7%. And if somebody carries out CPR, then you can maybe double it, maybe double it. But CPR is very, very hard to do. So we, we took a shot at this and we said, okay, we're going to need to partner with somebody. And we, you know, we hadn't done a huge amount of kind of uh, academic partnering. Um, but we met some fantastic people in UCC, the Health Information Systems Research Center, and Dr. Kira Fitzgerald. And uh, we started working with Kira and her team. So we got some really good mathematicians and scientists on board with us. Then we worked with John to get um, a cardiologist from the Cork University Hospital. We got together in a room where we kind of modeled out what this application could look like understanding at the time that we were going to build something for the footprint of a phone but we really needed something that would be the size of a pebble or something the size of maybe a, maybe a phone maybe a smartwatch something like that so we I, you know what i mentioned last week is that we're about 98 percent there in the algorithm there's about two percent of the code that need to be really tightened up as we're dealing with the the uh the accelerometers and the sensor packs on the phone to to uh to help us and really we, we got the the phone you put the phone between your hands and you carry out cpr and the phone can give you audio and uh, visual feedback that if you're carrying out the cpr correctly and as well as doing that, of course, behind the scenes, because, of course, it's a smartphone, it is sending an alert to a local community first responder. So it basically sends a message up to a server and basically says to the server, I'm doing CPR here. Can you get somebody to help me? The server, using some of the safe tracks logic that we've got from our search and rescue product, um, geolocates a community first responder, sends them a ping, well, an SMS message with a location saying CPR started here. We then can, of course, take that that emergency distress message that we have, that we've received, and we can send that to uh, a messaging center to alert, you know, professional medical uh, um, first aiders or, or first responders. Um, 
And as well, the application as the CPR is being carried out is is uh, gathering all that CPR data and storing it in the phone and actually transmitting it uh, as well to another server so we can actually capture all of that CPR data. So the final uh, the final step that we needed to execute really was uh, on something where we really took a leap forward and said, okay, CPR is now being carried out. A community first responder has been notified. The authorities has also have also been notified. So what's the first proper 21st century thing to do is to dispatch an autonomous drone. So we've worked with our partners in DroneSAR and in integrating their uh, drone technology, their DJI drone technology into, again, the Safe Tracks Maritime Search and Rescue uh, product. So in taking um, the ping for where CPR is carried out, we can generate, task, generate a, a tasking message to a ne- nearby CPR drone, a drone which is carrying an AED, and basically saying CPR has been carried out uh, in this following location. This is a safe place to land. And you can basically, with the software that um, the drone star guys have developed, it'll automatically task the drone and fly the drone to that location. Now, as I mentioned, rewinding it to the very start, this is alpha software. We're really kind of demonstrating capability to be able to connect these various different actors around a particular emergency scenario with, you know, early, I'm going to call it early uh, 21st century technology, which are really what I'm calling the first generation of smartphones. When we're moving into the IoT world, um, whether we're using um, uh, Sigfox networks or NB-IoT networks, but essentially you're looking at very small footprint devices, very, very tiny devices um, with with uh, batteries that can last, you know, a couple of months to five years to 20 years sometimes on the, on the Sigfox network. You're looking at a ubiquitous device network that can be available then to either to emergency first responders. You're looking at drones that which which can be a hell of a lot smarter than what, than what they are right now. So we're really just looking at a it's 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 a it would be impossible to have a bounded conversation about where that technology could go because yeah. it is accelerating so fast and the options are just so immense as to you know what the solutions could be. Elements of what I've mentioned, you know, are in place today and working today in Rwanda in in Central Africa. Um, we in Europe have got different issues that we need to deal with, whether it's the electromagnetic spectrum, which is licensed or um, controlled versus uncontrolled airspace and, and transponders. But these will be solved over time. And uh, I think the proliferation of, if I call it cheap technology, um, very accessible technology, which is no longer in the arms of, of uh, governments or large spending organizations like the, the HSE, uh, or our national health service or the like, um, it's making, uh, you know, it, I have to say that it, that it's broadening the horizons for, uh, available technology paths into the future. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, exciting times. It is indeed. And I love the way you've connected the dots between all those. And you've thought about the user journey, if you will, uh, from everybody, every actor involved. But when you, when you think of actually, as you said, where it's going and you think of connected devices or even, you know, as, as stuff like Fitbits get smarter and, you know, wearable, actual clothing gets smart. And then you think of AR, like I was thinking actually, what, what, you know, Apple are about to announce a big AR play that when, when wearables like AR becomes an actual designed glasses, like a Ray-Ban or something that people start wearing, this 
being able to look through the lens and actually be able to do CPR, you've, you've, you're planting the seeds of a platform that can do all those things. And by the time the tech catches up with it, you'll have a really nice infrastructure in place. Yeah, you said it. You said it. I mean, we're we're doing it today. You would say with with nineteen nineties infrastructure. Um, you know, with you know Wi Fi infrastructure, broadband infrastructure, wireless broadband infrastructure that's there using using devices that are not necessarily designed to, uh, for the for the purpose that we were intending. Then we're taking just normal white goods and kind of pressing them into uh, into service. Um, but of course, the software that develop that you're developing, that we are developing, with Java software that's developing, is entirely portable. So the hardware platform is changing and will be miniaturized. Um, so it, it gives us an opportunity, really, to at least to kind of play out how how some of these things would work. I think your your example there with the the AR glasses um, elements like elements of that are in place today within the defense infrastructure and. Uh, you know, I, I think you've you've nailed it for where some of that is going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Where can people reach uh, reach you and the team? We're we're based in Cork. Our, our website will be Eight West Consulting. We're on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Brilliant, John. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, CEO and co-founder of Eight West Consulting, John Murphy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you. <laughs>